How badly has the civilian population of Yemen been affected by the siege of Saudi Arabia and her regional allies? Who is under threat from the Saudi coalition bombardment? What is the background to the current conflict? What role are foreign powers like the United States and Iran playing, and what is at stake for the broader region? On this week's episode of the Global Research News Hour, we examine the two and a half month long siege on Yemen by Saudi Arabia and its partners. We'll speak to an observer on the ground in Sana'a about the humanitarian situation there. We'll speak to Ethiopian Canadian human rights activist Ali Said about impacts on African migrants. And we'll hear from Abayomi Azikiwe of Pan African Newswire about the geopolitics of Yemen and the prospects for peace moving into this Sunday's peace talks in Geneva, Switzerland. On this week's show, Yemen, the silent slaughter. Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 12, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Interviewed on June 6th by German Economic News, the chief economist at Bremer Landsbank, Volker Hellmeyer, says that because of Obama's sanctions against Russia, German exports declined year over year by 18% in 2014 and by 34% in the first two months of 2015. No later figures. But he asserts that, quote, the damage is much more comprehensive than these statistics show, unquote, because those are only the, quote unquote, primary losses, and there are, in addition, quote unquote, secondary effects, which get even worse over time. Why is there not in Europe a huge movement to abandon NATO and to kick out the U.S. military? Whom is the U.S. defending Europeans from after the Warsaw Pact ended in 1991? Why did not Gorbachev demand that NATO disband when the Warsaw Pact did, simultaneous instead of one-sided disbanding of the Cold War, so that there would not become the foundation for international fascism to arise to conquer Russia? first to surround it by an expanding NATO, and ultimately via TPP and TTIP in the aftermath. That comes from the article, German Banker, Obama is Destroying Europe, by Eric Zeus, posted June 10th. Hungarian news site Karpathir.com published several photos Tuesday of what appeared to be a NATO convoy concentrated on the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. The vehicles lined up in the Hungarian border town of Zahoni, eastern Hungary, on Tuesday afternoon included Hummers and multi-purpose variants of the U.S. Army's HEMTT eight-wheeled logistics trucks, some of them featuring tarps over their cargo. Border police declined to comment on the vehicles, and Carpathier could not determine the purpose or direction of the convoy. Zahoni, located in the country's northeastern border with Ukraine, 
features road and railway crossings into the western Ukrainian border town of Chop. That comes from the article, Mysterious Military Vehicles Spotted on Hungarian-Ukrainian Border, by Sputnik, posted June 10th. In the past, IntelliHub News and others have confirmed that while the list released by the Bilderberg website does include many who will be there, it also leaves out those that would rather not have their name released to the public. It is also well known that whatever agenda is discussed at Bilderberg will have repercussions for the entire world for years to come. Perhaps the biggest piece of news coming out of Austria and Bilderberg 2015 so far is the fact that a major Hillary Clinton advisor is on the list and set to attend. Longtime Clinton friend and ally Jim Messina of the Messina Group will be attending the Globalist Conference where the Globalist favorite for the United States 2016 election will surely be decided. This news indicates that the powers that be have most likely decided to back Clinton for president. That comes from the article, Bilderberg Chooses Hillary Clinton for 2016 by IntelliHub News, posted June 10th, originally appearing at DC Clothesline. A professor from Japan's Fukushima University Institute of Environmental Radioactivity, Michio Ayohama, told Kyoto in April that the west coast of North America will be hit with around 800 terabecquerels of cesium-137 by 2016. This is not news for those who have been paying attention. For example, we noted two days after the 2011 Japanese earthquake and tsunami that the west coast of North America could be slammed with radiation from Fukushima. We pointed out the next year that a previously secret 1955 U.S. government report concluded that the ocean may not adequately dilute radiation from nuclear accidents and there could be, quote, pockets and streams, unquote, of highly concentrated radiation. The same year, we noted that 15 out of 15 bluefin tuna tested in California waters were contaminated with Fukushima radiation. That comes from the article, West Coast of North America to be slammed with 80% as much Fukushima radiation as Japan by 2016, by Washington's blog, posted June 10th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Saudi Arabia and nine regional partners known as the Gulf Cooperation Council, together with logistical and intelligence support from the U.S., have been launching airstrikes against the Ansarallah fighters in Yemen since late March. The humanitarian situation is dire. A recent Oxfam situation report listed Yemen as the country with the largest humanitarian need globally. 20 million people, or about 80% of the population of the country, are affected by the conflict. 13 international humanitarian organizations are urgently calling for a permanent ceasefire, an end to the Saudi-led commercial blockade, an end to the arms transfers to the players, breaching international humanitarian law, and sizable increases in humanitarian aid and long-term development aid. 
To get a more detailed assessment of the situation on the ground, we are joined by Hisham Al-Omaisi. He's a Yemeni information and political analyst. For the last two and a half months, he has been based in Sana'a and using social media to inform the larger world about the unfolding catastrophe there. We spoke via Skype on June 12th. There's been uh, quite a lot of uh, airstrikes over the last little while, like last 24 hours? Yes, there have been. Mostly at night, though, last night. Mm -hmm. Uh, The military police was targeted a munitions depot in Fajatan, which is a mountain here in Sana'a, was targeted. The old city was targeted, which is a 3,000-year-old city in a very densely populated area. Three houses were obliterated. Two other homes were partially destroyed. Five people were killed, and more are being pulled out of the rubble now. Hmm. So... Um... Uh, I wonder if you could uh, maybe just to uh, help help our listeners understand if you could maybe descri- describe what it's like to be subjected to these airstrikes. Well, we live in absolute terror. Uh, the airstrike, we didn't get any warnings before the airstrikes. The fighter jets suddenly appear in the sky and they, they, they basically target pretty much everything. We don't even know what the targets are. They usually target uh, weapons, munitions, uh, military camps, uh, homes, residential areas, offices. So you're not prepared. You don't know what exactly they're going to target, when. And uh, to make things worse, Sana'a does not have bomb shelters. So you cannot run to anywhere where you can hide. Usually people hide in their basements, if they have a basement. And at a moment's notice, because we don't get sirens warning of the air raids hmm. so and and they're sporadic they could come at any time or is there a particular time of day when you uh, are more inclined to hear them no they're pretty much 24 7 usually they're more intense at night but they could happen at any time some of the worst uh, bombings happen during day and some of the most intense but not the ensuing explosions weren't as worse we're during the night. But again, there's no specific time to expect them. Mm-hmm. They're pretty much happening 24-7. Uh, have there been uh, that you've experienced? Have you been pretty much in the same place for this uh, whole two-and-a-half-month-long ordeal, or have you had to move around? I had to move around a couple of times. You think one area is safe, so you move to it, and within a few days, that area is bombarded. You move to another location, and again, the airstrikes seem to be following you everywhere you go. Because the thing is, the airstrikes do not target just military camps within Sana'a. They also target some homes, some VIP people who are living in densely populated areas. Suddenly, they would target some unexpected location where they claim there's a hidden stash of weapons. So they're pretty much targeting everywhere. There's no way to hide. And you keep moving around, hoping there's going to be a safe area. And within a couple of days, you realize that area too is being targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, do you so so the the building you're in now? Do you uh, stay on the ground floor? Do you go underground? Do you stay at a, a higher floor? Where what, what's the most sensible no, place? The the most the safest place is the basement. I have a three story uh, villa, but I never venture to stay in the second floor. 
I usually keep to the first floor, and as soon as I hear the fire just in the sky, I take my kids and I run to the basement. Okay. Um, so we're hearing uh, a lot about the, uh, the, the, the shortages of food and, and water and, and lack of access to, uh, to medicines. How, how are people uh, in your uh, vicinity coping with those uh, uh, lack of, uh, of basic uh, essential items? Well, we had some quantities stored. But over the past two months, we basically burned through those stores. Yemen imports almost 90% of its food, 100% of its drugs, and the vast majority of its fuel. After two months of blockade, the, the current situation is uh, catastrophic. There was a statement by 13 NGOs, international NGOs, yesterday, where they said, if the blockade continues there's going to be a humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen very soon. And when I say very soon, I don't mean within a month. I mean within a matter of days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Now, water in particular, uh, is there any basic infrastructure there that, that's, help, that's helping you to do? Have people have to uh, rely on neighbors? Uh, how do you get that, get hold of that? Well, you have to remember, Yemen is a very closely knit society. So we help each other. So far, we've managed to get by by everyone pitching in and the neighbors helping, the community helping. But for as far as water, for instance, they, we pump out the water using generators. The generators need fuel. The blockade is preventing fuel getting into Yemen. So it's, it's becoming very extremely difficult to get water, let alone food and other stuff. And the water price that we used to get, for instance, for 2,000 riyals, which is basically $10, have now quadrupled in price. It costs $40. Um, and, uh, of course, electricity, it's, it's coming from uh, generators that you've gotten hold of. Yes, because the national grid has been sabotaged early on by airstrikes. Any attempt to trying to repair those, and usually the, uh, the fighter jets would show up within minutes and attack the repair teams. And it's becoming, of course, a problem because now we only get an hour or two of electricity every few days. And those are run usually by backup generators, which is run by the state. But again, the state does not have the fuel to run those backup generators. So people rely on their own personal generators. I, for instance, have my own personal generator, which I fire up for a couple of hours a day. But again, now that the blockade is preventing fuel from coming into the country, I cannot even find the fuel to run my backup generator. Hmm. So you could be uh, effectively offline very soon. That is very true. Previously, you would notice that a lot of people from within Yemen would be very active on the online on the internet, but uh, a lot of voices have disappeared because they can no longer afford to buy the gas, which has quadrupled in price, and now basically unavailable. So they cannot get electricity to go online. The telecom infrastructure, the state's telecom infrastructure, has warned that they're running out of gas to run their servers, so they'll soon be shutting down as well, and soon you will not hear from the voices coming out of Yemen. 
What about healthcare facilities, hospitals? Uh, what can you tell our listeners about uh, what's happening there? It's a very dire situation. We import 100% of our drugs. Humanitarian uh, organizations that have been visiting hospitals, they speak of horrific scenes there. You would rush a patient to the hospital after an airstrike by some miracle trying to get them to the hospital because there's no transportation, again, because of the lack of gas and fuel. So as soon as he gets to the hospital, there's no electricity to run the sensitive equipment at the hospital. There is no drugs. There is no blood in the blood banks because, of course, the banks, they need refrigeration. And because there's no electricity, the blood goes bad within a few days. So you rely on volunteers providing blood on the spot. And, of course, the volunteers are hiding during the airstrikes. So it's unbelievably devastating when you visit a clinic. You find a lot of bodies littering the floor. And nobody can provide them with any form of, assi- of assistance. Hmm. Um, and and in terms of the uh, people getting ill, uh, do you are people close to you uh, coming down with uh, severe illnesses? Not in Sanaa, but it, they are in Aden. In Aden, dengue fever it is widespread in Aden right now, and they cannot control it, basically because they don't have prevention means. Of course, there's no cure for dengue fever, but there are some drugs that could mitigate the symptoms and the effects. And people cannot access Aden. They have no electricity, and it's very extremely humid with 65% of humidity and almost 40, 40 degrees Celsius, which is uh, basically uh, an ideal uh, environment for the dengue fever to spread. And now there's an epidemic down there and other places which are more humid and hot Hmm. Speaking of humid and hot, I mean, it's uh, getting into summer now. I imagine it's not, uh, it's getting pretty, uh, I don't know, unpleasant. Uh, what can maybe give us a, a little bit of a, more of a sense for our listeners about what it feels like uh, out where you are, some of the things that might be um, wearing away at your uh, capacity to, to cope? Well, the lack of food, the lack of water, the lack of internet, the lack of basic items. And on top of all of those, it is summer, it is very hot, it is very humid. And to top it off, you have airstrikes throwing bombs on your head 24-7 a day. It's Honestly, there are people who actually wish they would die and get it over with. There are people who cannot afford this because, of course, the economic situation is disastrous currently. All the businesses have stopped. So even those people who could afford some of the items at quadruple the prices, they're running out of money. There's an increasing inflation. Aid is not coming through. There is no hope within the coming few days with the political jousting between the different parties seemingly taking forever. It's a desperate situation. There's no light in the tunnel, basically, for pretty much everybody. You spoke earlier about how the uh, the the people of uh, Yemen just uh, come together and and network with each other. I'm wondering though if uh, things have gotten to the point where people are starting to turn on each other. Uh, can you speak to uh, anything like like violence or or the the human security aspect of it? Or is there 
any you know people trying to loot each other or anything along those lines that you're hearing about? Unfortunately, that is very true, Michael. What you just described is happening right now in Sana'a. For the first time ever, yesterday, there was an attempted bank robbery in one of the busiest streets of Sana'a, and three people were killed. This is unheard of in Sana'a. But a lot of people are now resorting to banditry. They're desperate. They're not going to die starving. So they will resort to thuggery, basically. Um, I remember uh, you, I, I think I saw one of your tweets, you were talking about the, the use of child soldiers. Can, can you speak to that point? Yes, um, it is a very complicated issue, with child soldiers in Yemen. You have to remember, this is a population where almost 60% of it is under the age of 14 years old. Uh, in Yemen, it is very common for kids to carry weapons. It's part of the culture. It's not something new. Now that uh, Yemen uh, is on the international scene, as part of the international arena, a lot of people are zooming into this phenomena and saying, you know what, this cannot go on. You cannot have kids carrying weapons. But because it was part of the culture for so long, recruiting kids into the army wasn't frowned upon. And that is why you see a lot of child soldiers. However, over the past 10 years, now that there's more education, there's more awareness, a lot of people are shunning away from that and trying to raise awareness that you cannot have kids, anybody under the age of 18, join the army. But, for instance, now with the Houthis, they're coming from tribal areas, remote areas, the hinterlands, where this, where education is not widespread, where awareness is very limited, they still have a lot of people, a lot of people under the age of 18, carrying weapons and joining the militias. The world now zooming in on to this phenomenon thinks that the Houthis are forcing people to join, forcing kids to join. No, they're not. It's, uh, it's, it was part of the culture since before. So they willingly join the army. They willingly join the militias. We're trying to limit that, but it's going to take more time. It's going to take more education and raising awareness. Um, now, what uh, are the thoughts of people around you toward the various factions, whether it's the, the Hadi-aligned forces or the, the Houthis or, or even Al-Qaeda in the Arabian, uh, in the Arabian Peninsula? Is, is there any, do you have any sense of people rallying behind one or the other of those uh, elements? Well, to begin with, there are a lot of people who are anti-Houthi, but because Hadi basically skipped town, and is dictating orders from Saudi Arabia. The, his rhetoric uh, is basically of an utter disconnect with the realities on the ground, has forced a lot of people to entrench with the Houthis, even if they're anti-Houthis. Now, basically being in the same boat with the Houthis and being bombarded daily, now being blockaded by Saudi Arabia and Hadi, they are forced to join the Houthis, at least in principle. They're basically fending off for themselves. They're stuck in the same trench with the Houthis. As far as Al-Qaeda goes, they, they have very, very limited support in the country. Uh, basically, in some remote areas down south. And of course, you have to talk about the resistance, the Harak, which is the southern mobility movements and calling for secession of South Yemen. They do have a lot of support in the south, and that is because of the inequality and injustice 
that has been done to them since 20 years ago, since unification, and they rightly do uh, complain of a lot of injustice done unto them. As far as Hadi goes in Saudi Arabia, he basically has no support here on the ground. A lot of people didn't really vote for him in competitive elections. He was voted into office through a deal that was basically dictated by the GCC. So he did not get into that post by popular vote. It is, he's much, much less accepted now that he actually stood with Saudi Arabia and uh, ordering airstrikes on his population, ordering a full commercial blockade, devastating the local population. Unfortunately, Saudi Arabia and the media still refer to the local resistance as being pro-Hadi, when those pockets of resistances across Yemen have repeatedly said that they are not pro-Hadi, that they are pro their own agendas. The southern resistance is pro-secession. The people in Adala, they're anti-Houthis, fighting the Houthis to fend for themselves, not because they are pro-Hadi. Al-Qaeda and the sons of Hadramut down in the Mukalla area, which is uh, basically the oil-rich province of Yemen, they fought off the Houthis because they wanted to instill Al-Qaeda type of rule, not because they are pro-Hadi. Yet you still hear media rhetoric talking about pro-Hadi forces on the ground, which is non-existent. Joining us now is uh, Ali Saeed. He's the General Secretary of the Human Rights Group Solidarity Committee for Ethiopian Political Prisoners. And uh, he's here now to talk to us about the uh, the situation facing migrants in uh, Yemen. So thank you for joining us, Ali Saeed. Thank you, Mike, for having me as usual. Okay. Thank you. Could I get you to comment on uh, the, the situation facing migrants there? Because even before the bombing started, uh, things were not very uh, going well for people in uh, for you know Ethiopian and other African migrants in, in Yemen. Well, before the war started, and we were complaining, you know, the situation about the Ethiopian refugees and other immigrant refugee, immigrants in. Yemen, how they are suffering, especially in the refugee camp and uh, in the city. So the uh, the refugees are being suffering for a long time there because nobody is trying to protect them. And as you know, the Ethiopian government has a relationship with the Yemeni government, so they are working hand to hand. So they are helping each other. So they are not, uh, especially the Yemen government is not willing to help or support the refugees. So what kinds of stories are you hearing about uh, what's happening to the refugees in Yemen? In Yemen, most refugees are being in prison and tortured and killed even before the war. And uh, there were no, there is no any financial or in, in moral support by the, the Yemeni government and also the UNHCR office there in Yemeni. And we have been complaining for so many years, especially the UNHCR office, which is located in Africa, in Sudan, in Kenya, and particularly Yemen. And instead of working for the Ethiopian refugees there and for immigrants, immigrate, uh, immigrants and uh, they are working for the Yemen government and for the Ethiopian government. That's also the, the biggest problem in African refugees. So we are asking, especially, uh, uh, and we are asking all Canadian to sign a petition which is organized by Ethiopian Orthodox Church here in Manitoba, here in Winnipeg, and also uh, Ethiopian Canadian Muslim community in Winnipeg, 
and Society of Winnipeg, Ethiopian Society of Winnipeg, and Society Solidarity Committee for Ethiopian Political Prisoners. And at the same time, also we are asking the Canadian government uh, to reconsider a resettlement program, which is blocked by now, especially to Ethiopians in general for Africans. So that's those, that's what, that kind of protection is important for the refugees who are suffering now. Ali Said, is there a, a key point you'd like to make with regard to the the, the reason that uh, Ethiopians in particular are becoming refugees and uh, finding themselves in places like Yemen? Uh, Mike, as you know, uh, to become a refugee is not a choice. It's imposed by the, those tyrannies, dictators and fascists, and also the corrupt uh, administration. So the Ethiopians and other African refugees are forced to leave their country due to, due to those reasons. Especially the Ethiopians are forced to leave their country by thesis, which is Tigray State Intelligence Service, and also are being killed and targeted by ISIS in Libya. If you remember a few months ago, and the 30 Ethiopians, Islamic and Christian, being slaughtered by ISIS. You see, they were forced to leave the country by ISIS and being killed by ISIS. So that's why most the non-profit organization and uh, a government and should consider and uh, to support those refugees and make uh, available for resettlement program. Okay. Ali Said, thank you very much for sharing this uh, this uh, recent development with us. Thank you, Mike, as usual. Ali Said, General Secretary of the Solidarity Committee for Ethiopian Political Prisoners. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website globalresearch.ca. The conflict in Yemen has been laboring on since March 25th of 2015 and two and a half months later. The humanitarian catastrophe is immense. Peace talks are slated to begin in Geneva, Switzerland on June 14th, although there seems to be very little prospect of the uh, situation alleviating. So what exactly are the roots of this conflict and uh, what are the prospects for uh, seeing some sort of a peace? Joining us from Detroit is geopolitical analyst and editor of Pan-African Newswire. His name is Abiyomi Azikiwe. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I uh, I was wondering if you could maybe give us a, a bit of a, a sketch of exactly how we got to this point, uh, the, uh, the bombing campaign from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries backed by the United States, uh, launched the, their attacks in, uh, on March 25th. But, uh, the roots go back, uh, much further than that. In fact, they go back, uh, by my uh, understanding to the, uh, the, uh, Arab Spring and some of the, uh, protests in Yemen that were taking place about three to four years ago. Do you want to, uh, maybe give us a, a little bit of, uh, that background for us? The country, uh, over the last, uh, several years uh, has been a major focus of uh, U.S. foreign policy and its so-called war on terrorism. 
there has been uh, the execution of numerous uh, people inside of Yemen, including uh, people who hold U.S. passports and are therefore uh, were considered as U.S. citizens. Also, uh, there was the issue uh, is considered uh, the poorest and the most underdeveloped uh, state uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, also uh, in the region of the Persian Gulf uh, states. So there are a number of issues uh, related uh, to the contentious atmosphere that exists uh, inside of Yemen itself. Going back, uh, if we want to start in 2011, uh, there was uh, a series of protests inside the country against uh, the former uh, President uh, Saleh, uh, who, in fact, now uh, has uh, allied uh, with uh, the Ansarullah, the uh, Houthi movement uh, inside of Yemen. Uh, his uh, government uh, was uh, held responsible uh, for the widespread poverty and uh, disempowerment, as well as instability inside of Yemen uh, during 2011. And there were mass demonstrations forcing a compromise uh, agreement, uh, which uh, the United States government had a, a profound role in negotiating, uh, that would, uh, of course, lead to some type of uh, democratic or at least um, uh, some type of more inclusive system uh, in Yemen. Uh, then uh, that uh, unraveled, uh, particularly over the last year, uh, when the government of uh, the fugitive uh, President uh, Hadi uh, fled uh, to the south of the country in the southern port city of Aden, the strategic uh, area, uh, which has been a focus of the fighting in recent months. Then, uh, as a result of the escalating tensions inside the country, the spreading of the influence of the Ansarullah movement, uh, he fled uh, to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, where he still remains. And uh, is the Saudi Arabian government and the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, which is advocating on behalf of the future uh, fugitive President Abed Rabu Mansur Hadi, uh, saying that he is still the legitimate head of state and that uh, the Houthi movement uh, is, as far as they're concerned, a force uh, that is heavily uh, supported uh, by the Islamic Republic of Iran. So the war itself, uh, as it has developed uh, since March uh, 26, is being portrayed as a proxy war uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Corporation Council and its allies, uh, backed by the United States on the one hand, and then on the other hand, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and uh, its ally uh, in Yemen uh, being the Ansarullah movement. So this is how the uh, current uh, struggle has been framed, and uh, the parameters of this struggle uh, have regional as well as international implications. Okay. So could you tell us a little bit more about the, the Houthi uh, faction here, the, the Ansarullah movement? I, I, are they one and the same for, for uh, starters? Yeah, the uh, movement... Um, it has been a resistance uh, movement uh, for several years uh, in Yemen. It uh, is allied uh, or considered a part of the Shia uh, Islamic uh, tendency uh, in Yemen. Uh, many people believe this is why the Islamic Republic of Iran has supported them in the struggle, uh, but they have uh, historically uh, been suppressed um, they originate, uh, it is said, in the northern regions of the country, and they have been considered a threat uh, to uh, the Saudi uh, GCC 
uh, overall strategic objectives uh, for the Arabian Peninsula. Now, uh, in recent uh, months, uh, going back to uh, last, uh, the middle of last year, 2014, uh, the Houthi have uh, extended their influence uh, into the capital of Sana'a. Uh, they have taken uh, large swaths of territory, even in the south of the country. Uh, so they're considered a direct threat uh, to uh, Saudi influence inside of Yemen, as well as Saudi influence uh, throughout the entire region. So Saudi Arabia uh, has more or less taken up uh, the banner of the United States in Yemen. The U.S. Uh, had been championing uh, the country uh, for the last several months uh, prior uh, to the uh, collapse of their foreign policy in Yemen, saying that it was a, an example of a success in the so-called war on terrorism because they have targeted so many uh, people considered as members of the al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula. Many of them were killed. Uh, but as uh, our listening audience knows, in uh, most of these drone attacks that have been carried out over the last several years, uh, be it in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Yemen or Somalia or wherever uh, in the region, uh, many of the people uh, who are killed in these attacks are not the so-called uh, armed combatants or al-Qaeda operatives or Islamic State operatives or al-Shabaab operatives, but they tend to be uh, innocent civilians, uh, elders, uh, children, uh, women, uh, men uh, who have nothing to do uh, with uh, these targeted organizations. Uh, but th the way in which the uh, war on terrorism is covered, uh, they don't uh, examine what is actually takes place on the ground. Uh, they have a report saying that this leader or that leader was targeted. Uh, they were killed. And in some cases, they have to come back weeks or months later and say, well, and in fact, they weren't killed. Uh, so th this is the atmosphere uh, that is prevailing in Yemen. Now, the United States uh, championing Yemen as a success story, of course, when the situation shifted, uh, they did not have the political uh, will or the resources uh, to respond uh, to the expansion of the Ansarullah movement's uh, 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 spreading of influence uh, inside of Yemen, and as well as this alliance uh, with other forces inside the country. So what they did was they withdrew uh, approximately 100 special forces uh, from Yemen. They also uh, withdrew their diplomatic personnel from the country, signaling, signaling uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia uh, to go ahead and carry out U.S. foreign policy objectives in Yemen, which uh, to a large degree coincide with those of Riyadh. Uh, so this has been the situation um, since March 26. And the war, which is not being covered almost at all inside the United States, has been devastating uh, to Yemen and other countries throughout the region. They have engaged in innumerable uh, sorties, uh, bombing missions inside the country. Depending upon the sources uh, that you uh, utilize or cite, Anywhere between 2,000 and 4,000 people have been killed. Uh, thousands of others uh, have been dislocated. Many of the people who have been dislocated have taken refuge in Djibouti, uh, which is across the Red Sea uh, in the Horn of Africa. And uh, these people uh, in the thousands are there. And Djibouti, as uh, many people are already aware of, has the largest uh, U.S. military base for the U.S. Africa Command, on the African continent, thousands of U.S. troops are stationed at a camp, uh, Le Monaire, along with uh, French uh, troops as well. Uh, so the U.S. has its hands all over 
uh, this war. Uh, the planes that are being flown, uh, the F-15, F-16 uh, aircraft are manufactured uh, by uh, defense companies uh, here in the United States, the General Dynamics Corporation. And also, uh, the U.S. has openly admitted uh, in articles published in the New York Times weeks ago uh, that they were supplying uh, refueling technology uh, to the Saudi GCC uh, fighter bombers. Uh, they were also uh, in a situation where they were providing intelligence, even though they claim it's not direct or specific intelligence. Uh, the fact of the matter is they are assisting in many ways uh, in carrying out this massive bombing campaign against Yemen. There's a, a third uh, player in this uh, drama, and that's al-Qaeda of the Arabian Peninsula and the Islamic State uh, that, that are active in Yemen. And uh, I'm wondering how that uh, development is uh, um, interfering or enabling the uh, the whole uh, conflict as it's taking place. Many people uh, believe, and there's strong evidence to suggest, a connection uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia uh, as well as other uh, forces in the Gulf, so-called Gulf Cooperation Council, and um, al-Qaeda, as well as the Islamic State. And uh, that uh, is playing itself out in Yemen. Uh, the fact of the matter is uh, these uh, so-called Islamist extremist uh, groups uh, have been fighting against uh, the uh, Ansarullah movement, uh, the Shia forces that are politically supported by Iran inside of Yemen. We've seen the most intense fighting uh, in Aden, uh, in the strategic uh, southern port city. Uh, where uh, territory uh, has uh, been taken and retaken uh, by both sides, those uh, uh, forces that appear uh, to be working in alliance with Saudi Arabia and the GCC and the others uh, who are uh, a part of the Ansarullah movement are working in alliance uh, with them, uh, the lawless forces of the uh, Yemeni army, uh, which are still allied uh, with uh, former President Abdullah Saleh. Uh, so... This is how the situation is being played out. You have uh, also uh, cross-border uh, interventions uh, by the Ansarullah, as well as the Yemeni lawless forces uh, allied with uh, the former President Saleh. Uh, there have been numerous attacks over the last several weeks uh, into the eastern uh, region of Saudi Arabia uh, that have killed uh, Saudi troops, as well as other uh, Saudi uh, personnel and civilians. Uh, so the war is actually becoming more regionalized. Also, there's been um, a series of bombings of Shia mosques, uh, both in eastern uh, Saudi Arabia, where you have a substantial uh, Shia population, as well as in the capital of Sana'a. Uh, so it's taking on a more sectarian uh, character. Uh, the struggle is being regionalized. And of course, uh, the United States is playing a key role uh, in this whole process by backing uh, Saudi Arabia, the GCC, and its allies. Talk a little bit about uh, the prize here itself. I mean, what what are the the main strategic considerations that the United States, in particular, wants to maintain control over uh, through Saudi Arabia uh, or or other uh, regional allies that's going to uh, maintain this uh, 
the situation is moving forward? That's the, the, the background concerned here. Well, there are two major uh, sources of concern as far as Washington and Wall Street are concerned. Aiden uh, is right on the Gulf of Aden, uh, which is a very important uh, shipping lane uh, in uh, that region. Uh, billions upon billions of dollars of uh, uh, oil and other uh, resources uh, go through that area uh, every single day, uh, including uh, military hardware. Uh, also, uh, the Red Sea, uh, which is um, adjacent uh, to uh, the Gulf of Aden, uh, is very important, too, because it represents a bridge, uh, more or less than a division, uh, between the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa. Also, if we look at um, Saudi Arabia, which has been a close ally of the United States, of course, the, they have been in partnership with the United States in the oil industry as well in the as well as in the military sphere. This is related uh, to the increasing influence of the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, not only in the uh, Persian Gulf states but also in the uh, Arabian Peninsula as well. Uh, so there's a uh, profound concern, um, some of it related uh, to the recent uh, negotiations between Washington and uh, European Union members and Iran over this nuclear technology program. Uh, but at the same time, it goes beyond that. Uh, that is an effort on the part of the imperialist states to contain Iran in terms of its uh, own internal uh, and technological uh, development. And at the same time, they are concerned uh, because the influence of Iran is also an ideological and political one uh, from the standpoint that uh, the Iranian government uh, came to power uh, over 36 years ago in a popular revolution uh, that was anti-imperialist, that was staunchly against uh, Washington and its influence, not only in Iran, but also throughout the region and indeed the world. And uh, that revolution has been able to sustain itself for the last uh, three and a half decades. Uh, the U.S. has attempted on numerous occasions to destabilize and overthrow the Iranian government, uh, but they have not been successful. They have imposed sanctions, draconian sanctions, against uh, Tehran, uh, and these sanctions have taken a toll on the uh, Iranian economy. Uh, so you have also uh, what is labeled as the Shia Crescent, uh, meaning the Islamic Republic of Iran, uh, the various political tendencies uh, inside, uh, for example, uh, Yemen, uh, also inside uh, other countries in the region, uh, including Bahrain, uh, being allied uh, with Syria, uh, which the United States has targeted uh, for regime change over the last four and a half years, uh, southern Lebanon, uh, where the Hezbollah movement, uh, which is also allied uh, with uh, the Islamic uh, Republic of Iran, uh, has uh, proved itself on the battlefield uh, in regard to uh, its efforts to drive uh, the Israeli defense forces out of Lebanon, out of southern Lebanon, uh, defeating them in 2000, and then, of course, again, when they tried to reintervene in 2006. So these uh, alliances uh, where Tehran uh, appears to be the center, uh, coupled uh, with uh, the outright instability in the uh, Arabian Peninsula, uh, the potential for uprisings in the Arabian Peninsula as well as uh, in the Persian Gulf states, 
and also uh, the role of the United States Africa Command uh, in Djibouti, uh, all of uh, grave uh, concern of uh, Washington, as well as Wall Street, uh, because there's a lot at stake in terms of the uh, global oil market, uh, which the United States is increasingly uh, reasserting its dominance uh, through various mechanisms by internal uh, production, uh, driving down the price of uh, fuel, uh, all over the, uh, the international community, uh, also um, also driving down uh, prices of other commodities, uh, causing a, an extreme uh, economic uh, crisis in countries like uh, Russia, and Venezuela, and the Federal Republic of Nigeria, and others uh, who produce oil. So it, it's a continuation uh, of the, uh, the 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 effort by the United States uh, in alliance uh, with the European Union. Uh, to dominate uh, that region of the world and also to counter uh, Russia, to counter the People's Republic of China, uh, as well as the Islamic Republic of Iran, and their greater uh, cooperation among themselves, their greater alliances, as well as their political influence uh, throughout the world. Now, uh, during his speech on Capitol Hill in March, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke of the need to control Yemen so I'm wondering where you see Israel fitting into that uh, larger framework. Uh, the state of Israel uh, targets the Islamic Republic of Iran as the major threat uh, right now uh, in the Middle East. Uh, Iran uh, conducts its own independent uh, foreign policy. Uh, so therefore, uh, they cannot uh, be controlled or manipulated by Washington or uh, by uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, also, um, Iran has supported uh, militarily and politically uh, the Hamas resistance uh, movement uh, that is uh, in control of the Gaza Strip. And they have been a formidable uh, source of resistance against uh, the state of Israel uh, for many years now. Uh, so they want to, of course, uh, create an atmosphere uh, where actual war is waged directly against the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, the United States is on board. Uh, for this war, but they, there are differences, tactical differences, on how the war against Iran and its influence throughout the region uh, should be waged. Uh, the Israelis, uh, on the one hand, uh, advocate a more aggressive war. Uh, the United States, on the other hand, uh, carries out a more subtle and a more uh, indirect uh, form of destabilization and war against Iran. I mean, it's clear uh, that the United States is supporting uh, this war that is going on in Yemen. And it's quite obvious that the war in Yemen is heavily directed not only against the Yemeni people, but also against the people of Iran, its government, and its influence uh, throughout the region. So the state of Israel is on board uh, with this war that is being waged. And it's quite interesting that many of these um, so-called Islamist uh, groups, uh, which uh, have been fighting uh, Hezbollah, for example, where the struggle is intensifying in southern Lebanon, on the border with Syria, uh, that they are fighting Syria, uh, also uh, carrying out uh, massive operations in Iraq, uh, have uh, targeted uh, the Shia uh, parties and tendencies uh, in the region and uh, virtually do nothing against uh, the state of Israel uh, in terms of its military operations and even in regard to its propaganda. Uh, so this is why many people uh, have reached the conclusion uh, that uh, at least some of these groups uh, are working uh, in conjunction 
with uh, Washington and Wall Street, uh, and also um, being supported by Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, and Qatar. Uh, so it, it, it's a part of a broader imperialist uh, scheme uh, to dominate the Middle East uh, and also the uh, African continent. Mm. Now, in a recent uh, article that you wrote uh, just earlier this week, you mentioned the, the talks taking place in Geneva on June 14th, and there's already uh, a, an apparent uh, uh, position that's being staked out by the, the Saudi Arabian side saying that uh, essentially recognizing the legitimacy of Hadi and uh, the uh, the opposition, the Ansarallah forces, essentially uh, saying that they're illegitimate. Does that uh, not pretty much... Um, make a- any resolution that these talks uh, irreconcilable? Well, it doesn't start off on a good footing. And uh, even the Associated Press, uh, which I quoted in this article that was published in uh, Global Research, uh, that, uh, quote, Yemen internationally recognized prime minister, uh, meaning uh, Mr. Hadi. And when they say internationally recognized, they mean recognized uh, by the West and by Saudi Arabia, uh, it goes on to say that upcoming United Nations-sponsored peace talks in Geneva are aimed at restoring power uh, to his government and pressuring Shia rebels to withdraw from the capital and other cities. So uh, that's not a good uh, starting point uh, for any uh, set of negotiations, particularly uh, from the standpoint that uh, Hadi uh, was essentially uh, driven out of Yemen. And even uh, though he took refuge in the southern part of Yemen, uh, many Yemenis uh, who are from that region say he does not have uh, substantial support uh, in the south of, 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 of uh, Yemen as well. So it doesn't start off on a good footing. Uh, so And it doesn't also mean uh, that the bombing uh, by uh, the Saudi GCC coalition uh, will halt. We saw uh, last month uh, where uh, the Saudi foreign ministry announced a uh, pause of five days ostensibly to allow humanitarian relief. And there's no real evidence that this pause took place. Uh, the uh, fighting on the ground escalated uh, as well uh, during uh, this period. And uh, humanitarian relief that is being provided uh, to the country is being blocked, uh, either through the bombing of uh, airstrips and also the bombing of ports uh, in Yemen. Uh, one Iranian Red Crescent uh, vessel uh, had uh, attempted uh, to deliver uh, humanitarian relief, and it was halted and diverted uh, to the Horn of Africa port uh, at Djibouti, and uh, which is a major base uh, for U.S. military operations uh, in uh, the Horn of Africa. So, yes, I believe that uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, hurdles uh, to overcome uh, if uh, these peace talks are to have uh, any uh, positive benefit. Now, this uh, conflict has been described as Saudi Arabia's Vietnam. Like in the world of real politic, given the the factors and the interests that you've outlined in this interview, how realistically do you see this scenario playing out? Are we going to see a balkanized Yemen? Are we going to see a kind of a scorched earth policy? What, what's what's the end game here? You think? At this point, it doesn't appear, uh, despite the fact that uh, for the last two and a half months, uh, this uh, bombing operation has taken place and has created a lot of uh, uh, hungry people, displaced people, injured people. The hospitals are overwhelmed. 
uh, the uh, blockade of humanitarian and medical assistance and food uh, is being facilitated uh, by uh, not only Riyadh, but also by Washington. It doesn't appear as if it's built any uh, resolve on the part of the Yemeni people to turn against the Ansarullah and the Hadi forces who they perceive as defending the national sovereignty of Yemen. Uh, so they can continue this bombing campaign. They can continue uh, to create uh, havoc and uh, unrest uh, in Yemen. Uh, but in the long term, uh, is this a winning strategy uh, for uh, the U.S.-backed uh, forces? That is the real question uh, that is at hand right now. And I'm sure the State Department uh, is trying to ponder uh, over uh, this issue as well. Uh, they held talks uh, in uh, Muscat, Oman, uh, just uh, last week uh, with uh, representatives of the Ansarullah, uh, the U.S. State Department. So they're trying to work out uh, some type of compromise uh, to foster some type of face-saving uh, agreement uh, between the Ansarullah and the United States government uh, that would allow the U.S. to re-enter Yemen, at least uh, in an attempt uh, to re-exert uh, its influence uh, inside the country. But that remains uh, to be seen. There are many other uh, variables uh, that are involved in this situation. The United States has its hands full in Iraq. Uh, they just announced uh, earlier uh, today, uh, on uh, Thursday, uh, June the 11th, that they were, uh, in fact, sending more so-called advisors or trainers uh, to Iraq, uh, boasting uh, the number to well over 3,500 uh, U.S. forces. Uh, now, this is the same Barack Obama administration who ran for president in 2008, saying they were going to end the Iraq War. And um, there's now, uh, since last year, been sending troops back into Iraq uh, because their strategy has totally collapsed uh, in, in Iraq as well. Uh, so, yes, I believe uh, that uh, they have to still, in their minds and in their foreign policy uh, formulations, uh, develop a, a, a strategy where they can save face uh, in the light of a broadening regional war uh, that is extending uh, not only in, uh, throughout Yemen, but also into uh, Saudi Arabia. Well, um Abayomi Azikiwe, I'm afraid we're going to have to close there, but I want to thank you very much for uh, helping to shed some light on this um, severely underreported uh, humanitarian crisis, and I uh, look forward to speaking to you again at some point. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with a geopolitical analyst and editor of Pan-African Newswire, Abayomi Azikiwe. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.